0: Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Good
1: afternoon, Peter.
0: Good afternoon, Prue. How are
1: you? I'm well. How are you?
0: Very well, thank you.
1: Great to be back doing another episode of Trade Policy Decoded. It's a bit of a special episode this week because we're talking to Nicholas Moore AO about the work he led for the Australian government to develop a national strategy for greater trade and investment between Australia and Southeast Asia. Nicholas Moore is very well-known in Australia. He's one of Australia's preeminent business leaders. He really turned Macquarie Bank from being a relatively small Australia-based merchant bank into one of, if not the world's top diversified banking, capital markets and global funds management group. It is a huge company now. He led Macquarie Group during this period of growth for 33 years, 10 years as its CEO. Nicholas has a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Laws from the University of New South Wales. He was admitted as a solicitor and as a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. He also has an honorary doctorate in business from the University of New South Wales. In addition to an impressive career in business, Nicholas Moore is also Chair of Screen Australia, the Centre of Independent Studies, the Smith Family, the Willow Technology Corporation, the National Catholic Education Commission, and oldest group and a member of the University of New South Wales Business School Advisory Council, which is hugely impressive in its own right. In light of his major contributions across so many endeavors, last year Mr Moore was awarded an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to the Finance, Business and Commerce sectors, as well as to Arts Administration and to Education. So We're so pleased to welcome you to this episode of Trade Policy Decoded.
2: Thank you, Prue, and thank you very much for inviting me on to talk about uh, our new Southeast Asian strategy.
0: So, Nicholas, uh, we've invited you on the podcast to talk about the national strategy you developed to strengthen trade and investment between Australia and Southeast Asia. So the final report is called Invested, Australia's Southeast Asia Economic Strategy to 2040, and it was launched on 6th of September last year by the Prime Minister in Jakarta. Before we get into the guts of the report, we hoped you'd give us some insights on your role as Australia's Special Envoy for Southeast Asia. So trade policy decoded tries, as the name suggests, to decode trade policy for experts and novices alike. That includes trying to help business understand where policymakers are coming from, and vice versa. So, in your role representing the Australian government, have you noted any standout differences between how government views commercial relationships with other countries generally, and in this case, Southeast Asian countries, and how businesses might view commercial opportunities, particularly in
2: Southeast Asia? Yeah. Yes, I, I think so. The the key point, I think, is is one of perspective. From a, a government viewpoint, there is a, a keen understanding across all elements of government about the importance of our neighbours and the fact that our neighbours will be there forever. And the government is very focused on the long term. So the government has, our government has invested substantially in the region and indeed more substantially than than business in the region in terms of building relationships building capability building awareness all the important elements for for many years now i mean one of the the facts that that you know but not many people in business would know is that australia's biggest embassy is in jakarta there's 500 people there uh, 500 people who are skilled well connected and working in all elements of the indonesian government and the relationship with Australia. So I I think the the, the first point is the depth of the relationship Australia has with the countries of the region, long-term relationships and the the depth of the goodwill. You know, going back to the Colombo plan after the Second World War, so many of the leaders of the region have been educated at, at Australian universities. Of course, more recently, our universities have educated many of not just the the government leaders, but business leaders in the area. So I I think the business leaders probably don't understand the depth of those relationships the government has invested in, both on a, a personal basis and on an institutional basis, that when we look at the government departments across the region, many of them have been developed with the assistance of Australian expertise. And indeed, that's still happening in places such as as Jakarta, where we have, in Indonesia, where we have a whole range of skilled specialists helping develop the infrastructure of government. From an aid viewpoint, obviously, we have been investing in aid projects that have played an important role across the region. So, you know, obviously, when you go to uh, camp, uh, Thailand and, uh, and Laos, you can see the bridges being built, similarly, in, in Vietnam. So back in the day, we, we did bridges, you can see the investment that's been made in agriculture in terms of you know, basic commodities such as rice, but also higher valued products. And there's, a, I think, broadly in the region, given this investment that's been made by the government, or in the individuals, in the structure of government, in the research and development, there is a much greater awareness coming out of this of Australia in the region than of, of the region in Australia. So I think there's much greater awareness and. One case in point, of course, is Cambodia, which is beyond simply the mechanisms of government and simply aid programs. It went to the whole security story in terms of the end of the civil war in Cambodia and the key role that Australia played there. People in Cambodia are very aware of the role that Australia played from a security viewpoint in terms of working after uh, after the civil war. And again, in terms of aid, it wasn't initially from the government, but it was subsequently In terms of basic English language skills in Cambodia, a lot of it came from the the Quakers, the Australian Quakers who were active in Cambodia early on, and those programs were taken on by the Australian government. Just one example. So I I think the the key point to make is the depth of the relationship, government to government, bilateral, the depth of the relationship with Australia and Asian is is quite remarkable and I think underappreciated from an Australian business viewpoint. Obviously, Australian business has many long-term relationships, mostly based on trade, as we know, over the while. I think they underestimate what the government has done in terms of building this, this huge reservoir of skills and goodwill in the area, but but also the architecture that's in place to assist trade and investment between Australia and the region. The agreements that have been put in place, both with Asia and on a bilateral basis, really are very, very comprehensive and do allow great access to Australian business and investment uh, in the region. And again, I think that's underappreciated.
1: So building on that, your appointment as special envoy comes at a particular time in global trade policy. We're seeing a lot of developed countries move away from competition and open markets towards greater government intervention and industry policy. So the US IRA is an example. I guess if you're looking at the investment the Australian government's made in building these relationships with countries in Southeast Asia, do you have a view on how the government can best work with business to try and achieve public policy outcomes that aren't necessarily in the immediate interests of a company? So for example, if the government wants to see increased investment in Southeast Asia by Australian companies, do you have a view on how they can best work with business to achieve that?
2: Well, as as it happens, we've just produced a report that, that hopefully has some excellent recommendations in terms of helping the government think about how it can improve two-way trade and investment between Australia and the region. And, and the recommendations come in four categories. Our number one is raising awareness. And it comes back to the point I was making before that the awareness of investment opportunities and trade opportunities from Australian businesses in the region is less than it should be. And I think this is readily acknowledged by most Australian business leaders. One of the interesting examples, if you ask how many Australian business leaders have been to Israel to look at the business opportunities there, and due to the great work of the Australian-Israel Chamber of Commerce, it will be probably the majority. Ask that same question of how many people have been to Indonesia, how many people have been to Vietnam, dramatically fewer numbers. So in in terms of raising the awareness of the opportunities there, there's a lot that can be done from a broader community viewpoint, including the government, to help that take place. And so we've got a whole range of recommendations how we can raise the awareness of the opportunities in in the region. The second thing, obviously, is removing blockages. So even though we've got great architecture in place, there are still things we can do to help allow the free movement of capital, of goods, and of course, people, and the appropriate circumstances between the region and Australia. The third area we talk about is building capability. And a lot of this is the capability of the governments and the businesses around the region to work better within the region and also with Australian companies. As well as that, we talk about the building the capability of the people in the region and in Australia to meet the needs that we see coming up in the future. For example, renewable energy. You know, we we saw a report here in Australia recently, which Net Zero put out, and I think they said we need 250,000 people to work on the energy transition. Well, if we need that number, the region needs a lot more than that, and we we don't have the people trained in Australia or in the region. deal with that we need to build that capability for uh, energy transition we also have issues here in australia the aging of the population there's issues we think about the region as being uh, young and it is young but actually the societies many of the societies thailand singapore even vietnam are aging so the issues about aged care you know we have aged care facilities closing in australia not for a lack of old people we have quite a few of those but we, have, we don't have the skills necessary to look after them. And similarly, the region has that same issue. So all the, not, not all the same issues we have, but we are looking at similar issues. Therefore, we need to build the capabilities both in the region and Australia to deal with the problems we have in Australia and the region more, more broadly. And then we've talked about deepening investment in terms of what the government can do to deepen investment from Australia into the region and what role the government can be playing in terms of that and and one of the recommendations we made that the government picked up is this idea of deal teams a lot of the big projects either here in australia or in the region have many years duration and coming back to the time frame we talked about earlier you know if you're an investor i've got a checkbook i want to invest now i want to invest quickly how do we cope with the idea that the the project we're talking about today might not be investable for two three four five years and unless Australia is getting itself involved in that investment early on, it, the opportunity won't be there for it later on. Somebody else will have taken it. So the government picked up and responded to that and he's establishing deal teams. These are skilled individuals who can work with local players to develop investable projects today and over many years that will be available for hopefully Australian investors, Australian corporates who might want to participate going forward so we have a whole range of recommendations as you know but broadly in those four categories of raising awareness particularly of opportunities for australians in the region but as well as that opportunities for regional players to be selling goods into australia you know we we buy a lot of goods from china which is excellent a lot of those goods can be made in southeast asia as well so why aren't we looking at how we source from not just china but Southeast Asia as well. You know, the whole world is talking China plus one. That's a natural comment in the region and globally disruption. You know, everybody knows the, you know, the, the impact of COVID and disruption from COVID, the importance of having an additional supplier, an additional market to sell your product to, an additional market to buy your products from. Now that plays very much in terms of deepening the relationship between Australia and the region, and the region with the rest of the world. So this. China plus one story is one that you hear resonating around the world. So raising awareness, uh, removing blockages, we talk about quite a few of the blockages there, building capability both here in Australia and the region, and finally, uh, deepening investment.
0: It's a fascinating menu of recommendations, Nicholas. What I'm curious about, and maybe I'll preface this with an observation, the government's clearly doing a lot already in these spaces. Yes. I think the one that jumps out for me is the deepening investment by creating deal teams. You've got 75 specific recommendations, which is a lot. I guess some of these things the government is doing already but needs to do better or somehow differently. Is any one or two that jump out for you as particular priorities and also... How seriously is the government taking this report in terms of implementing these recommendations?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I think the government has shown its commitment to the region, number one, in terms of actually commissioning the study, actually having me and and team from DFAT actually work in terms of putting together this strategy. It, it says it's, it's important to us, its, and it's been very clear both, not, I mean, all, all three relevant ministers, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, the Trade Minister, have many have have said how important it is. They've commissioned us. We've had quite a team in Dfat and Department of Trade working on this. So obviously dedicated resources up front, developing the strategy together. But as well as that when we launched it, as you said in jakarta, the the, the government announced immediate an immediate response to it in terms of the recommendations that followed said so we are going to respond to these recommendations today. And then the next point, you know almost as importantly, is they've put together a cross-government working group between uh, led by ministers with representatives from DFAT, obviously from the Department of Trade and Treasury, actually looking at how they can implement the other 75 recommendations with a commitment to report back annually in terms of the progress of those recommendations. So I don't think we could have expected as strong a response as that. And certainly... Very clearly, um, uh, very clearly, from a government viewpoint, this is this is clearly a priority. Obviously, we've got the March meeting coming up of the Asian leaders in Australia, very important milestone in our relationships with the region. This strategy is out there. The government's obviously working on the recommendations. You know, I can't obviously you know predict uh, where they're going to come out on on these, but I can tell you they're taking them very seriously indeed.
1: Thank you for that. That's fantastic insights a key part of the report that you mentioned was the emphasis on outward investment from australia into southeast asia and the opportunities there for australian investors in these markets most politicians most governments tend not to talk about outward investment they're much more focused on things like inward investment and australia really if you're a politician you only talk about exports and there's no such thing as an import so i'm just wondering in terms of the shift in messaging have you got any ideas about the kind of messaging the Australian government might need to use to encourage that increased awareness of the opportunities in Southeast Asia for Australia's investors
2: yeah well I think that's a really a really important point and 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 certainly it resonated when we we're out talking to both governments and the private sector in the region the fact that our mandate was to increase two-way trade and investment because as you say Prue, most government trade policies are about how do we increase exports and how do we increase capital flows into our country and we've actually gone out to the region and saying we'd like to increase imports from the region into australia and we'd like to increase australian investments into the region and so as you say that's quite contrary not contrary but it's it's the other side of the coin that people are used to and this was well received this was well received the region thought well this is you know terrific. and in terms of the recommendations that we've made, we've ma- made recommendations how we increase the awareness of products from the region in Australia, including things like tourism. you know how do we actually have the tourist destinations of the region become more prominent in Australia and we're working with other organisations in terms of how we have the goods being produced in the region, more available and more known about in terms of the uh, in terms of the people. So from a trade viewpoint we think that makes a lot of sense. From an, an investment viewpoint, there is a lot that can be done to encourage Australian investors to learn about the region and again having all the leaders come to Melbourne is very helpful obviously in that regard. you know Melbourne is a very big investment center in Australia, particularly from the superannuation fund viewpoint so to have that is a great signal. The government there talking about it is a, is a great signal. From an Australian savings pool viewpoint, we know the super industry is three trillion dollars today and scheduled to go to nine trillion dollars, all being well in terms of investment returns in the future. Planning a lot of that money needs to be invested outside Australia. You know it's very very substantial, and in terms of what's growing in the world today, the Southeast Asian region is arguably either the fastest growing part of the world or the second fastest growing part of the world, depending who you, who you believe. So it is very natural that we should be looking to be making investments in the Southeast Asian region. And to the extent that, you know, our report is talking about how the government can help that in terms of raising awareness, in terms of removing barriers, in terms of increasing confidence, uh, in terms of investor outcomes. So maybe just
0: to shift the focus back to X1.3 Nicholas, so we export a lot of minerals and commodities. Yep. We want to export more value-added products. How does East Asia fit into that value addition, export diversification story, and particularly taking into account the need to diversify our export basket away from China, the China plus one strategy that you, you mentioned?
2: Well, China plus one, a lot of that will is just the products we you know you'd say well that's the products we're selling to China. Unfortunately, we've had a, a rehearsal already. Obviously, with some of the disruption we had out coming out of COVID and other issues more broadly, and you know the Prime Minister was photographed in Vietnam with with barley in, in terms of bread and and beer and what have you, which otherwise would have gone to China. So so what we want to do is obviously deepen those markets for all our commodities across the board. The things that we do we do export. Our economy, as we know, in terms of our exports generally is very strongly commodity based, but increasing our levels of services, and given where our economy is at today versus the region, you know we're a rich economy, most of our economy, the great bulk of our economy is services. Their economies are becoming more and more service orientated as time goes on. so that that's a natural position for us to be moving in that service sector to actually, help fill out the offerings in the local economy. So services are which hopefully will be a good feature in terms of, you know, as we talk about tourism as a very simple one, the, the service obviously that's most apparent to everybody at the moment is education. And we think there's an enormous amount that can be done in addition from an educational viewpoint. Our university sector is very well developed. When you go to Kuala Lumpur, Arguably, the number one university in Kuala Lumpur is Monash. You know, when you go to Vietnam, the number one university in Vietnam, I say arguably, this is obviously from our viewpoint, we would say is RMIT. Interestingly, when I was appointed to this role, one of the ambassadors for one of the countries in the region came to see me and said, we need to build capability in our country. Why is RMIT in Vietnam and not in our country? You know, we want those skills that you can bring. So coming back to that service sector, so you can see the university sector has done a lot, but still has got a long way to go in terms of the upskilling of the population. Secondly, what we talk about in our report is not just university education. We do focus, we say with universities, we would like it to be more vocational. So rather than the you know, the caricature of kids coming to do a course here where they, you know, they either stay at home or go to the university to do lectures. We'd like to see a much broader courses offered, which result in a genuine internship in the workplace here in Australia. So the student not just learns about Australian universities, but actually learns and experiences Australian workplaces. Hopefully they can then take that broader knowledge of who supplies the employer, who does the employer work with, take that back to to the region, so deepen it. Vocational training, and we talked before about the need for the energy transition in Australia and the fact that there's a need for energy transition in the region and that none of us have the skills necessary or the skills necessary. We need to be developing those skills in Australia and in the region. Aged care was another example. Um, There's a whole range of skills shortages that we have in our country. And actually, they have in their countries as well. We should work together in terms of developing courses where people can work both in Australia and the region to study both in Australia and the region and get qualifications that are region wide, not just in Australia but actually work across the region. So having a workforce that is set up to be working across the region and therefore probably internationally as well, that is, you know, you can see that we are very much set up for that in Australia today. That has, you know, great potential in terms of in terms of what can be happening. We've got a list, as you know, in our report of, of sectors, particular sectors of interest, and each one of them you can get quite excited by the prospects. So starting with agriculture and food. So many of the countries in the region, including Singapore, Brunei, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, Thailand already, they talk about how they can have access to food, uh, reliability of high quality food, but also processing that food to onward sale to, you know, globally. So they have in their mind that they are going to be global suppliers of food. Where's that food going to come from to process? It's Australia. What else can we do in agriculture, of course, is what we've been doing today in places like Vietnam and others, where you see people like Sunrise on the ground, they're working with the local communities, developing varieties of rice, and not just developing the rice, but also how you process the rice, the storage of rice, logistics. You know, once you have, as you know, logistics is probably the the most important thing in terms of making sure the product is useful and high quality. Uh, we've got Linfox as an Australian company operating in the region. We had Toll, obviously, operating uh, in the region. So actually connecting people from all these very important. So agriculture and food, big tick. Uh, resources, obviously. If you look going back in history, one of the earlier investors in the region, if you look at Malaysia, for example, were Australian tin miners way back in the uh, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So there still is resources are underdone in the region. So if you speak to the major Australian miners, I'd say mining is underdone in the region. There needs to be a whole amount of work done in terms from a regulatory viewpoint. We have a good model here in Australia from a regulatory viewpoint. There's a lot we can share in terms of how you regulate mining. There's a lot we can share in terms of how you can develop mining. There's a massive world there, you know, rare earths, You know, lots of things happening green energy transition we've talked about that before it's a you know we are further down the track and we see investors from the philippines malaysia indonesia in our renewable projects part of the reason for their investment in our renewable projects is actually to learn what's going on so they can apply those skills and that investment back in the region so again it's a two way a two way flow happening there we've got australian companies also investing in renewable energy in the region already or wanting to invest in the region. All these categories, frankly, we've got Australian investors who want to step up and invest. And in resources, energy transition, agricultural food, people are out there, infrastructure. And in fact, even in resources today, you know, uh, Orica is the number one mining support company in Indonesia, you know, very, very substantial position in the market there. Infrastructure, Australian investors like infrastructure investment. There's a massive need for infrastructure investment in the region whether it's logistics, airports, ports, the whole thing. We have a superannuation industry that probably, from a global viewpoint, is one of the largest investors in infrastructure around the country. And obviously, we've got a lot of skills in terms of the delivery of infrastructure. We talked about the visitor economy, tourism, both sides. You know, a lot of Australians jump on the plane and fly to Europe or fly to America. What would be good if a lot more of them went to the region where the tourist facilities are developing? Obviously, Indonesia, I think, is our number one destination. I read the newspaper the other day with Bali. There's a lot more in the region than Bali. Bali is great. There's a lot more, and I think Australians will explore that going forward. Uh, healthcare, uh, you probably saw that Aspen Medical, a you know, Canberra-based hospital company, has got a, a mandate to provide uh, services for a whole range of different uh, healthcare facilities and hospital in Indonesia. Our healthcare standards in Australia, obviously, are are very high by global standards. A lot we can add in terms of healthcare in the region. Professional and financial services, obviously, you know, we would say that. I come from a banking background. There's a lot that we can, can add there. And creative industries, you know, very underdone in terms of the depth of our creative industries, in terms of what we can supply and what we can actually, if you look at the diaspora, which is one of the points I haven't mentioned before, we have over a million people from a Southeast Asian background here in Australia, an incredible resource, but again, a a resource that would respond well to creative industries coming from the region into Australia. And so, and so, you know, I I think there's a, there's a lot to be done. I mean, one of the, you know, the, the ways I like to think about it is if you think about how the growth and development of Asia has led the growth and development of Australia since the second world war, you know, starting with Japan, of course, you know, they, we quote more in their research, calling it the high-flying geese, you know, sort of Japan was the first country to industrialize and the model that it had in terms of uh, building export oriented industries, big focus on education, big focus on urbanization. Australia was a major beneficiary in terms of what happened in Japan. And then, of course, what happened in Taiwan, Korea, China, and in indeed in the region. So that model we see playing out in Southeast Asia more broadly everyone sort of nods and say yes that sounds familiar but imagine if in 1952 in japan we had australian universities operating you know imagine if we had australian law firms operating imagine if we had australian you know sort of mining companies operating if you think about the sorts of things we have australian logistics companies operating if we had all that imagine if we had a million japanese in australia who wanted to increase trade and investment imagine We've got an incredibly strong relationship in, with Japan today, both economically and politically and culturally. Imagine how much stronger it would have been had we had in place in Japan what we have now in the region. Now, the, the region, you know, the region we, think, we all think is going in a very similar direction, but we have more than a million people from the background. Our universities are well-regarded people. The people have been to them. They value them. The services that we provide here, people recognize that we have skills. You have to be very optimistic that the the trade, coming back to your point, will it just be commodities going forward? Well, in Japan, it's it's not just commodities, but it's a lot of commodities. But they didn't have what we have now, what we have developed, the the people-to-people links, the skills links that we have. So I'm very optimistic that if we look, you know, in you know, 50 years or 70 years or even 30 years, it'll be a much broader amount of trade and investment based upon all the different connections we have.
1: With that insightful and, I have to say, quite inspiring sales pitch, I have every expectation that this report's going to materially impact on Australia's economic relationship with Southeast Asia. That was incredible and hugely valuable. Just so insightful. Thank you so much. I must admit, I'm here with my checkbook ready to jump on a plane and go and see what I can investing in Southeast Asia after that spiel. It was fantastic. Thank you so much.
2: Pleasure. Pleasure, Prue. Thank you very much for your interest. And, Peter, thanks for the questions. I appreciate both of them. And uh, and good luck with your initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you so
1: appreciate much. It. Peter, Prue and Nicholas Moore signing off from Trade Policy Decoded.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.